uh, by reading our text this morning. And if you got your Bibles, you can look at Matthew chapter 5. And, and again, although we put it on the screen and put it in your notes, you know, I encourage you still to use your Bible and underline and write maybe as an opportunity to do that. But let's look how it goes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus sits down on this mountain, and out of his mouth comes these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know if you feel the same way I do, but there's a dissidence right off the bat here. And let me put those two words on the screen there. You go, blessed and poor in spirit. And you go, how in the world do they go together? See, blessing is about having enough, overflowing. We think of blessed, we think of good things. And then he couples it with those words, poor in spirit. Does that imply that that really is good and wholesome? And you go, I don't think so. It implies something lacking. And maybe within our souls, within our emotional state. But let me just point out a couple things that Jesus is not saying in this first beatitude. I don't think he's saying this. Hey, don't worry. Your blessings are right around the corner. No. I don't think he's saying that at all. And I don't think he's saying this. In spite of being poor in spirit, you know what? God can bless you. And I go, no, I don't think that's what he's saying either. See, what is he going after? Maybe change that word poor and replace it with with the word poverty that we know it today. I think he's really just saying this is that when there's poverty within our spirits, it's a state that God blesses. Now, here's the challenge of it. I think we assume that because God is, I think we can assume that by God defining it in this way and him speaking it, that it's connected to the spiritual world. Not the emotional world in terms of our attitudes at times, in terms of our kind of the emotions of where we're at. But let me give you the application. Maybe that helps define it just a little bit more. We got notes in the bulletin there you can follow along with. But I said it this way. Become a person who is fully aware of our spiritual condition apart from the work of God. 
what am I saying there? It's this. Jesus is inviting us to a place, an attitude. And he wants us to embrace this, that the spiritual world within our souls can only be filled by somebody outside of ourselves. That It's a state of being empty, not having anything poor, and someone else has to fill it. And, and we know who that is. It's the Spirit. It's Christ. Now, here's the challenge. We live in a fallen world where we know that independence is valued almost beyond everything else. And we learn at a young age that you can, it's like this, you can be all that you can be and don't let anybody tell you that you're weak. Be strong. Be the king of your own world. Folks, I have to say this, this beatitude pushes back against that. And some of the teaching on self-esteem, where it kind of tells you this, you know, from within you can believe who you really are, that you're important, that you're somebody, and that attitude should come from within. And I go, no, that doesn't work with the kingdom of God. See, the kingdom of God actually invites the opposite. It invites dependency on another It invites a dependency on the Spirit, on Christ. And so the world is saying, prop yourself up in this beatitude is so, no, be dependent on Christ. And with that, you think of all the accomplishments that we have. Folks, they're worthless apart from Christ. Our identity really isn't anything unless we have Jesus. We can't overcome anything, really, unless Christ is in that equation. So poor in spirit is about dependency. It's not about how one feels or being depressed or woe is me attitude. You go, no, that's not it at all. So when the world tells us that your identity is from the self and within, the kingdom says, no, Life and meaning and identity comes from an outside source, and it is Christ and Christ alone. But let me give you a a, a kind of a physical picture where, where I think it's a posture of when we become poor in spirit. It's really this idea of our hands. See, in a world we tell, you know, just pull yourselves up by the bootstraps and just hang on for life. But this picture is not the kingdom of God. This, opening up and saying, Christ, meet my needs. That's the posture that it's talking about here. And the world says, no, you can do it. And Jesus, speaking to this crowd, goes, open up your hands. Invite God to fill the spiritual poverty in your lives. And do we do that? Do we open up our hands? But, but isn't this also true? When we have emptiness, we have poverty spiritually within us, that we really don't want to admit that to other people? Don't, wouldn't we rather impress others with where we're at, even in our spiritual attitudes? we got to portray strength. So we try to hide it, and we, oftentimes where it goes is we, we feel good about ourselves but based on what other people think about us. You know, it's what Christ thinks about us. 
It's not based on other people. And I think this, the more we grow in our faith, the more when maturity comes along, we recognize more and more that there's a hole that can only be filled with Christ. And that pride and self-love actually gets in the way of that posture of opening our hands. See, it's in weakness that we're blessed and that we can turn when it's like this, that he can actually fill us with his riches that's found in himself. See, we have riches, but we can't create them. We can't maintain them. We can't possess them without a relationship with Jesus. God wants also, though, to bless us. And as we open our hands, he goes, I want to bless you. And that's what can happen. But let me just point out one thing. We think of this poor in spirit and we go, is it just that we're supposed to do this? Kids, get this. Jesus modeled it for us. Look at Philippians 2.5. Look how it reads. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. That phrase, he emptied himself. That scripture tells us that he actually had to receive from his father. He had to go to a place of poverty himself. He, he became a man and he had to do this with his father. In order for blessings to occur, his father had to give him that. In order for love to grow, he had to do it. Power, authority, words that he needed to speak always came from the father. He was dependent on his father. Jesus received blessings, I don't know if you've ever thought of it in that way, from his father, from his dad. So the poverty of our spirit is a reflection, and in many ways we're participating with Christ when we have this posture of going, open hands. God, fill my spiritual need. Reveal it to me. I wait for you to fill it. Much better place. That, but that's the opposite of the world teaches let me jump to the next one here, in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And you go, who likes to mourn? Is that in anybody's bucket list here? Where we should go? See, mourning implies something was lost. There's been a loss in one's life. Yesterday, I had a memorial service here for a family in the community. And those people were mourning the loss of a father, a husband, a friend, a relative. And there was real loss in their lives. Now, most often I think we hear the word mourning and we connect it to death like that memorial service. But, it, but it's, mourning goes beyond that. Think of relationships that aren't working. Circumstances and jobs and things in life where you go, it's not working See, is it okay to mourn? In one sense, to admit that we're not at a place that we would like to be. But here's one piece, even as I thought of the service yesterday. Mourning actually reminds us that we live in a broken world. I spoke on Ecclesiastes, and there's a time to live and a time to die. 
And in this world, death is certain. But see, we live in a world where we can't control everything. And is it okay to mourn and say, God, I need you? I I think too often this feeling of mourning, we just don't like. And some people think, actually, they think it's unbiblical. Matter of fact, let me me give you some options on the notes there where I think some people go when mourning comes along, when there's a loss in our lives. The first one there, we try to will our way out of mourning because that's what good Christians are supposed to do. See, because of Christ, there's no reason to mourn, is there? Be happy. And matter of fact, I think some people come along and go, you're mourning, you're not trusting God. Or, or you know what, you're just having a pity party. That's what you're having. If you really trusted God, you wouldn't feel that way. But get this. Mourning shows that there's a poverty, a hole that's missing. And we recognize, well, we recognize we can't do it alone. There's another attitude, I think, that we can move toward. When we're mourning, we can become a victim, number two. And, and that second option is, the idea here is that victimization runs rampant and we go, oh, life is bad and, and therefore everybody should owe me and I deserve better and, and all of that. It's, and it's, you know, it's based on pride and self-love. And you go, that's not the place to go either. But there is a third option for us. And it's this, we turn to Christ who is the author of mercy and add in their comfort. You see, when morning comes, when we're discouraged with life and it's not working, we turn to Christ and he is the author of comfort and mercy. Matter of fact, the application there this morning for morning, morning invites us to receive and relish to, to, to ponder the goodness of God, that God is the giver of mercy and comfort. It's because that's who he is. God looks to do that. I, I think of Lamentations. We used it last week. God's mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. But get this. Jesus looked at these people Blessed are you that mourn, for you will be comforted. See, again, it's an acknowledgement of our emptiness, that we have our poverty, that, that, that there's really a blessing that waits us. And when lacking occurs, the king of this kingdom can fill a hole with comfort. And it's an opportunity for God to love us Profoundly. Mourning is an opportunity. Blessed are you that mourn. But here again, folks, on the area of mourning, Jesus also mourned. He didn't go around just being happy all the time. Look at Matthew 23, 37, how he looks over Jerusalem. This is the end. He knows that the the cross is coming. And look what he says. He looks over and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
You're killing the prophets and stoning those who sent you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hand gathers her brood under her wings and you would not? He's mourning that they didn't respond. He's lamenting their spiritual condition and he mourns. But catch this, what he's doing is reflecting the heart of his father. See, God also mourns and is lamenting that people don't turn and respond to him. And the challenge that we have is when we think of God doing that, we go, no, wait a minute. Isn't God just this moral lawgiver that every time we sin, he gets disgusted with us? And I go, no, it's not like that. See, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. But let me put a statement on again on the screen. I think that's more accurate. God hates sin because he hates what it does to his creation. The results of sin. He recognizes the breakdown of people not responding to himself. And I think this, if, if you're an adopted child of God, he hates what sin does to you and me. But you notice, with mourning comes comfort. And, and by the way, I don't know if you caught this, it's actually in a future tense. It applies to now, but it also maybe more so applies even toward the future. And he's saying this, is that one day, this broken world that we mourn about, it's going to be fixed. And as you move into the kingdom of God, yes, you can get mercy and comfort now, but one day, it's going to be completely done away with. You see, mourning reveals that we point to the Savior coming back, that redemption's going to occur that heartaches, sickness, health issues, brokenness, it's coming to an end. Isn't that great news? Let me jump to the next beatitude, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I reminded you last week is that as Jesus gives this, these are not commands. He doesn't command us to be meek. And it's not an if-then statement that says, kind of, like, if you will yourself to be meek, then you will get a blessing. That's really not it here. See, he's describing a character, a state of. And it really points back in one sense to that first one of this attitude like this. God change me. See, that's really the starting point. But blessed are the meek. And even we hear this word meek, we don't use it very often in our culture, but we kind of equate it with words like weak, soft, unable to defend oneself. And then you throw that into our world where those things really aren't viewed as healthy, good. See, we like words like Power, strength, being in control. That's what the world teaches. Now, I do have to go down an alley here because there's a little confusion here in some of the translations. And for example, if you've got the New American Standard, you see that he uses the word gentle. And a New Living, for example, uses the word humble. 
Well, the interesting thing is I dug on those issues and I go, why are they translated different? Uh, um, I believe both those words, humble and gentle, really don't convey what meekness is. See, meek is actually only used one other time in the New Testament. And as I dug in it, here's a definition uh, from a theological dictionary. Meekness toward God is that disposition of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good. Therefore, without disputing or resisting, I think it's this, we embrace the circumstances that are coming our way with an understanding that God is in control. But let me give you the application of that, the essence of that, of of meekness. And I said it this for your notes, we need to ask God for meekness to move us away from fighting evil with evil. To say it differently, we stop being the judge when people sin against us. See, the meek are those who don't fight evil with evil. They believe with certainty that God is in control. And the meek are those who refuse to demand justice and fairness. We love justice and fairness, and meek goes, no. God is in control. And guess what? Jesus demonstrated it as well. Let me show you where, 1 Peter 2.20. And look how it reads here. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. To this is, is about suffering. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled. And here's the character of his meekness. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he have to do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This was a picture of profound meekness. Is that when he was reviled, he could have said, Justice said, I should send down lightning. And he didn't do it. Instead, he turned to his father and he said, I will trust God that you will be the judge, that you're the righteous judge in your time. You do whatever you want to do. But meekness moves us toward living within the kingdom of God. It's setting aside the rights to repay back evil with evil. And again, it's so much more than gentleness. It's the power to give grace and let it go. Now, I need to give an illustration. I think I've used it before, but there's a principle I've used for years and years in marriages when when marriages are struggling. It's called the principle of the swords. And it kind of goes like this. Someone comes to you and speaks a harsh word. And you don't like it. And you think it's wrong. And they shouldn't have done it. And I don't know if you really realize what happened. At that point, the the mind, 
the soul begin to collaborate. And, and they do this. What do we do? What do we do? And within one second, they're done. And the decision is made at that point, should I pick up, they've just cut me like a sword. You know, they've made a little cut here. Should I pick up my sword and grab that and go, I'm going to cut you back. And we say something back. And then what happens in marriage, the other person doesn't like it, and they're going to, justice says, you know what, what they just did is wrong, so I'm going to go back at them. You catch this picture of the sword. We demand justice. We demand that they correct the untruth that they just said. And it becomes fencing. Uh, but here's a piece to this as well that i got to point out. I've seen. Uh, some don't fence back immediately. They realize that they're going to get cut up and they're not going to be able to respond back quick enough. So what they do is they pick up the sword and kind of put it in their, in their, behind them and they walk away and, and then they begin to go to other people and then they use other people as the basis of cutting that other person. So they begin, you know what, that person, you know what they did to me? Cut. And so they do it behind their back. But, but catch this. Meekness lets it go. And the kingdom principle here with the sword, let me put it on the screen. The one who has the power to let the sword stay on the ground wins. And you see how opposite that is in relationships. That's kingdom living is saying, I'm going to let away. I'm not going to go back after them and take a hack at them. That's the kingdom. That God is calling. That's an upside down world where the world cries, it's not fair. That's not just. And Jesus is saying, be meek. Trust with your hands up. Entrust your life to me and the other person to me. Do you see the radicalness of what he's calling us to live and how to live? Let me move on. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This one dovetails actually into the other Beatitudes. Hunger and thirst, there's a need again. It, 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 something's lacking. Uh, one of the days this last week, I skipped breakfast and I got really busy and some people came in at lunchtime and all of a sudden I realized I didn't have breakfast or lunch and about four o'clock hit and I'm really hungry. And as I reflected back to that day, I go, I wonder if I ever hunger for righteousness like I hunger for food. There was some guilt there. But see, hunger and thirst implies something is missing, lacking. And do you see how it fits with those other qualities? It fits with fairness and justice, let it go. But a hunger and righteousness, if you're doing that, one doesn't want to pick up the sword and cut the other person back. See, but what is the righteousness here? Now, I've got to explain that. What does it mean, this righteousness, and that you're going to be blessed for it? I think it's this. Oh, maybe, let me, let me explain it this way. I don't think it is this. 
It's not just the absence of moral sin. See, I think we think righteousness is just about everything perfect. I'm not sinning, I'm not lying, I'm not cutting with the sword, therefore I'm okay. But it's more than that. Let me put up a definition that I came across. Righteousness is returning to the condition. It's a return to the condition or the state of being that God had created before sin entered this world. That root word right, rightness. There's wrongness and there's rightness. Rightness is what it started the original intent. So you think back to marriage. What was the intent of God before sin came into the world? That is righteous marriage. Children honoring their parents. What was God's intent for children in relationship with parents that is not has to do with sin when sin and the flesh came into it? So we think of restoring. Righteousness is about restoring back to how God intended it to be. That's what righteousness really is about. There's a longing to see things reconciled back to God, to live in a way that we were created before sin came into the world. Let me give you the application. I, I think where we got to go, we need to learn to know God's heart of what he wants for this world, maybe to say it farther, of what, he, what God thinks about what's reconciliation. To go back to something previous. So we need to allow God to reveal to us how things need to be restored and look at it that way. See, God is longing for a world to be set right. Matter of fact, this broken world led him to send his son to die. And you realize that as we come to know him, as we've, the Spirit has worked in us, that there is a restoration, there's a righteousness that we have now, that we've been restored back to the original relationship like Adam and Eve had before sin came. And we're righteous before God. He views us relationally as right. That we need to get this in terms of even understanding the world. So do we set a set of glasses on? How do we look at the world? We go, what does God desire? See, I think that's the challenging statement. What's the lens that God looks through? When he sees the poor, what does he see? He wants them to be restored. Let me, let me maybe give a more pointed example. Yeah, you see, I don't, I don't believe at times that the church here in the United States is really hungering for real righteousness. And in particular, for example, with the gay community. Because here's the tendency. We look at those people and we go, disgust. Oh, it's disgusting. Like, oh, that attitude is not hungering after righteousness. See, do we see those people as their lives are broken? That they're believing lies of the enemy? Do we see them that they have a need for Jesus? That they need to be restored to something new that bears the image of God 
as God intended it. See, do we see that? Or we just say, oh, reject him and never love him. But, but here's another piece to this. Do you realize that Jesus' ministry actually was for righteousness and restoration? And even when he entered into it, look, look at Luke 4.18. This is the early days, first where it kind of began his ministry. He goes into the temple and he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed, anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Sin captivated people and he's here to liberate them and so they go back to their original state. He, he sent me to recovering the sight of the blind to set liberty to those who are oppressed, to go back to what God intended from the very beginning. See, I, I think it kind of funnels down and when we look at people around us, what do we see? What do we see? Is the righteousness based on how God sees these people? But one last phrase I've got to end with here. That phrase, blessed who hunger and thirst, and it says, they will be satisfied. You go, okay, satisfied? What? Do you, what Jesus, what's that about? And understand here, he's flipping the kingdom and the world upside down here. See, what does the world say about satisfaction where it's found? And I think it's this, money, success, Power, status, happiness. Uh, this week, I don't, know if, I don't know where it was, but I, I heard a parent say, I just want my kids to be happy. And I go, ah, what does that have to do with the kingdom of God? Very little. I want my kids to be blessed within the kingdom. See, that's a new reality that where we have to go after as parents. It's not happiness, it's mourn, poor in spirit, hungering for righteousness. Why? Because Christ is the one then that fills the whole of those things and we gain a blessing. But I think it comes down to where do we find meaning in life? Are, are we looking to the world's paths and go, this is where I find my purpose in life? Or are we looking to the kingdom of God? He says, you enter the kingdom of God and I will give you profound meaning and purpose in your life. You see how everything is upside down here. First shall be last, last first. We'll get to that eventually. But maybe to close, I mean, just ask us some questions. Is there a hunger in our soul where we want to see what God sees? That we want to restore like God wants to restore? And what are we really searching after? Is it what the earth is telling us, gives us purpose and meaning? Or is it really something profoundly different where living within the kingdom and living under the reign of the king, that we find something vastly different that's deeply meaningful. 
I, I think it's a challenge for us every day to live within the kingdom and discover that with this posture of going, okay, God, I need you every day. When we get out of bed in the morning, we go, I need you. Would you help me live within the kingdom of God today? Let's stand.